Welcome to the ISO with myself, your host, Dan Dickow, on the Gonzaga Nation Media Network. Today's guest, someone who gave me my start in the coaching world. I'm no longer there. I spent one year. Somebody who uh, I was able to reconnect with over the summer, and it's great to have him on as a guest today. Chad Buchanan, the general manager of the Indiana Pacers. Chad, thanks for joining. No, I'm glad to be here, Dan. You know, I, I'm sorry if I steered you down a bad path there into the coaching world, but I knew you had a future in basketball, um, so it's just a matter of finding the right right niche for you. So I've always thought the world of you as a player and what you're about and your feel for the game, love for the game. So I'm not surprised you're still still around the game today. Yeah, I enjoy the broadcasting side. I do some coaching, you know, with uh, with my son's AAU group and, and some different stuff in the Spokane area. But uh, the starting and coaching at the professional level can be eye-opening, whether you're coming out of, uh, you know, another coaching rank, or you're coming from a player perspective, when you're kind of starting to evaluate new and upcoming coaches and the roles that you have had, what do you always look for? I think the first thing, it's, it's similar to what I look for in a player is a, just a genuine love of the game. Players that, you know, like yourself, that just love, couldn't get enough of it, you know, whether it be in the gym, working on the game, um, watching it when they're on the road, talking about it, reading about it. The guys who ate up film work, you know, just guys who have a genuine passion for basketball is what I look for in players. And it's also the same in coaches because, as you know, you've played the professional level, you coach at the professional level, it can consume you. And if you don't love it, then you're not going to be as good at it as the players you could be. And as a coach, you're not going to reach as many players. And you're not going to be able to, to help them reach their ceiling, I should say, as a coach. And so that's a, the number one thing that I look for is somebody who just loves the game. I think the second part is the personality. There's got to be a, a, a love of communicating, an ability to connect with people, people from all different backgrounds, people with different personalities, people who are learned different ways. It's no different than like a school teacher. There's each student learns the game differently and you have to figure out a way to connect with each individual student. And so those are the two biggest things I think I look for in a coach. And um, there's lots of people out there that have one or the other. Finding both is, you know, those are harder to find. And you had both. And that's why, you know, I think you would have made a great coach if you just stayed down that path. Um, but I think those are the two biggest qualities that I look for in a coach. Obviously, you gave my my start in coaching as a player development coach with the Blazers while, while you were in charge there. I learned a ton in that first year um, on the coaching side with, with uh, uh, Nate McMillan and his staff, Dean Cooper, and then with you a little bit in learning the front office side. So I got my break because you and I had connected. How did you get your break into the world of professional basketball? Because if I remember correctly, you played college baseball, if I'm right. Yeah, I played Division Three baseball and basketball. I'm originally from Des Moines, Iowa. And I played a Division Three school here in Iowa. Played both sports all four years. I knew basketball was my first love. I did baseball, you know, as well. I was recruited to do both, and I decided I could play both at a small college. So that's the route I went. And then I immediately got into coaching after I graduated. I became a graduate assistant while I worked on my master's degree at the University of Iowa for Dr. Tom Davis, who was the coach there. And really enjoyed the coaching side of it. And that's when I first got my itch for, you know, maybe this is the path I want to go down. So I finished my graduate degree. But I went back to the school that I played at, Simpson College. And I was a, ironically, I did five jobs. I was the assistant basketball coach. I was the head men's golf coach. I taught a class on sport leadership. 
I was the freshman student athlete liaison for their academic schedules. So I was putting together plans for each student, how they go down a path to graduate. And then I, this was the worst part. I lived in the dorm as a hall director. So I was, <laughs> I was living in this little apartment and I was, you know, breaking up fights on the weekend. And I was cleaning up when somebody threw up in the, the washer or dryer. I had to go clean that up. I was, fire alarms were getting pulled at three in the morning. I had to go deal with that. And so, but it was a free place to live. And with all those duties, I was making $12,000 a year to do those five things at the small college. But my primary thing was the basketball. So I was traveling around, meeting coaches, recruiting kids, working camps. And I eventually met uh, Kevin Pritchard through a lot of my you know, interactions and uh, around the game. And Kevin was coaching at a minor league professional team in Kansas City, Missouri. And what was called the ABA, they brought back, tried to bring back the ABA. It was similar to G League level basketball today. And a lot of guys who were trying to make that jump and they maybe had a taste of the NBA and just weren't quite that level. And so I did that for a year. And Kevin was the one that really gave me the opportunity. He ended up hiring me to be a scout for the Blazers when he got hired to be their director of player personnel. And so that was kind of my foot in the door. And it was just kind of just luck. I wasn't pursuing the NBA. I, I thought I wanted to be a college coach. And I really enjoyed the team component of it. And then Kevin offered me a job as a scout. And I decided I'm going to try it as the NBA. It sounds like a great opportunity. And I fell in love with the variety. You know, I was, as a coach, you're around the same team, the same 15 guys every single day. And you know their warts, you know their strengths. And so you're working on those. And it's, it's the same group every single day. And there was definitely some great parts of that. Experiencing the highs, you know, seeing a player develop or a team have a great win. That, that was a great feeling. But when I got into scouting, I was going to a different practice every day almost. You're out on the road, you're watching UConn one day, then you're watching Syracuse the next day, then you're going to a game at St. John's. And so you're seeing something different every day. And that was really stimulating to me. I felt like I learned a ton watching different systems, different practice styles, coaching styles, different types of players. And so I felt like I accumulated a lot of like, my overall philosophy and what I believed in when it came when it comes to what is winning basketball and that helped me kind of feel like hey this is a path I want to go down I'd love to be able to build my own team one day and fortunately I you know went through the scouting path and was able to get the opportunity that I'm in now today is um, I'm basically Kevin Pritchard ironically is our president here with the Pacers and I'm his GM underneath him so you know we work together with our front office and our coach and you know, building a team, which has been very, very stimulating because of it's something new every day. And I like that variety. Yeah, I, I would agree. The times that you sent me off on scouting assignments uh, to watch college games was awesome because it wasn't the same every single day working with the players, which was great, um, but it was different. And you, I learned a lot in that year with the multiple roles that you've had with different organizations, now being a GM, you've been a director, player, personnel, college scout. What's the biggest challenge once you're in the NBA? Is it finding exactly what you want to do? Is it managing expectations in your own career of wanting to maybe move up to the next step? I think in my role as GM, you know, as I go back as a scout, I think my biggest challenge was, proving myself that I had an ability to evaluate players. And I so say you have to go through two, three, four years of drafts of evaluating players and seeing how those players develop at the NBA level and some of them don't develop. And so 
you've got to go through that process of proving that you have an eye for talent. Um, as I get into more of the front office role that I'm in today, I think the challenges are more interpersonal than they are evaluation because you have staffs just continue to get bigger and bigger and bigger in the NBA. And, you know, the players of the money coming into our, into the league right now is so enormous that it creates a new dynamic that, you know, when I first got in the NBA, it was the love of building a team, evaluating players. And what do I like? What do I don't like? How does this fit with our coach? How does this fit with our, our best players? Now it's more of, okay, how does the personalities and the agendas of each individual person match up with what we're trying to do as a team? Um, you know, players now are, you know, they're very consumed with their own individual brand in a lot of cases. And it's more about their brand than it is about the Pacer brand. And so finding that common ground where you can have 15 guys who maybe what's best for the team isn't best for them individually, getting them to buy into that vision and I think that the challenge I face is when you get them on board and then it starts to maybe go a little off track for just a little bit. And I feel like guys, it's just easy for them to just jump ship and not stick, stick with it. And I think some of that goes back to just the mindset of today's players. They've, they've jumped from team to team growing up as an AAU and high school and college. And you see the transfer portal is so massive. It's just today's mentality of today's player is more like, right now, what's in front of me, what's best for me right now today, and trying to get as a front office the long-term vision to match up with what the short-term vision for a player. That's my biggest challenge. And they're all, they want success, which is great. And that's what you want in a player. And sometimes the patience uh, is not always there that they, I have to have as a front office person. <laughs> patience as a player is a hard thing. I know there were times as a player I didn't have it, you know, uh, late night phone calls after a DNP to my agent, like, Hey, come on, what's going on? What, what insight do you have? You are on the other end of phone calls with agents. How do you balance the delicate conversations between your ownership group and maybe your president and then agents? Because I can imagine you're in that middle world where you have to be open and honest and transparent with all sides and trying to find the best message for everybody. Sure. I've worked for three teams, so three different owners, and each each owner has had a little different approach. They've all had different personalities, too. Our owner here in Indiana, Herb Simon, is just a phenomenal family man, human being, cares about his people, his employees, and it's really been a different approach than I'm used to. Is a little more cutthroat than the other places I've been, um, which is not a bad thing. Um, I enjoyed working for all three owners I worked for. But you're exactly right. In the GM, you're kind of in the middle of you're trying to keep your players happy with their role. Um, there's a saying, maybe you've heard it. I think the head coach and GM's job is to make sure the three or four players who are unhappy don't poison the nine or ten players that are happy. So you're kind of balancing, you know, daily. And that's a lot of conversations directly with the player. I think I've found that's the best way to handle it. Obviously, they have agents, they have family members, you know, they have teammates, whatever. I think the direct, direct communication with the player about here's your role. Here's how we see you're fulfilling that role or not fulfilling that role. Um, you know, so in, in our coach, Coach Carlisle is phenomenal with that as well. He's very direct, very communicative with our guys about how they're doing. And I think the more honest you can be with a player, you're going to have some days where they're just pissed at you because you've told them something they didn't like. Um, but I've also found that if I lie to a player, you're going to lose them forever. 
and they're just not going to trust anything you say. So I, I'd rather a guy be mad at me for a little bit, whether we're unhappy with his what he how he's playing or we're considering trading him. I'd rather give him that honest, you know, dialogue than lie to him and have him be untrustworthy of me, which then spreads the, the locker room, which spreads the other players in the league. So I just, I think as a GM, the best thing to do is just tell the truth to people. You, you got to do that because you're just never going to make everybody happy. And if you're worried about making everybody happy from players, to staff, to the media, to your fans, it's, it's impossible. And you're just going to consume yourself and be miserable. So I've just found, I'm just going to tell the truth and be straightforward with people. And I know that's going to make some people unhappy with me, but hopefully at the end of the day, they'll know they're, working with an honest person that's going to give them, you know, accurate information. One of the roles, obviously, is a GM to put a team together that can compete for a playoff run. I would imagine that's your owner's goal year, year in, year out. But there's different processes to get there. Some organizations work through the draft. Some go through free agency. Some go through trades. Talk about the difference in the three because – there's a lot more scouting that goes into the draft than I think people realize. I don't think people understand just how hard free agency is because, you know, I grew up in the Portland area, smaller media market. Indiana is a smaller media market. Uh, and then also trade wise, there's probably, correct me if I'm wrong, 5% of trades that get discussed internally within the NBA actually go through. Kind of talk about the three ways of forming teams and how you put things together. Sure. I think some of it relates to, like you touched on, your owner's goals. Some of it relates to your geographic and location, your market. You know, in Indiana, and this was very similar in Charlotte and also in Portland, it's a smaller market. It's not maybe a glamorous, you know, spot in people's eyes for where, hey, I would, I'd love to go live in Indiana and, you know, because of what? You know, there's no, there's no beach. It's not like sunny weather. There's no mountains. The nightlife is you know, very limited, um, but we have other things to offer. So that part of it kind of eliminates a lot of free agency options for you. For like the big name marquee free agents, they're typically not going to choose a small market unless they feel like they're the final piece to a championship team. You know, those marquee free agents are tend to go to the bigger markets, which, you know, we that's just reality. And that was the way it was in Portland and Charlotte. Now I feel it's the same way in Indiana. So we have to focus in on scouting. Um, you know, you touched on the draft and the amount of work that a scout puts in, you did it for a little bit. It's it's hard to hard to fathom the amount of time they spend. It's not just going to games, you know, it's it's you're on the phone, you know, gathering information from all these different sources that touch that player. You know, it's their coaching staff, it's their trainer, it's their academic tutor, it's their high school coach, it's their AU coach in high school, it's maybe a, a former teammate, you're almost like an, a detective, an investigative reporter trying to get as much information as you can on that player. Um, so the, the draft becomes critical for us because we're, we're going to always, you know, hang on to our picks. We very rarely trade our picks in, in Indiana, unless it's for a player on a long-term contract that we're no going to, we're no, we're going to retain. Um, so our scouting process is a, it's super, super important because that's where most small market teams find their stars is through the draft. And if you have a good scouting department and you hit on, you know, a couple picks, I mean, there's some teams, I mean, Cleveland, Memphis, you know, two, two teams with young up and coming players and rosters that have done just a, I mean, a fantastic job of drafting. And that's what we have to try to do is we, 
we've got to try and find our stars typically through the draft because it's impossible to get them through free agency, we've found. Now, trades, you know, not often are superstars available in a trade, but we've that's our kind of our second, you know, avenue for us to build a team. And you're exactly right. You know, there's there's hundreds of conversations that I'll have um, throughout the year with other teams. And we talk about each other's roster a lot. We talk about what are their needs? What are our needs? So do we match up some way in a trade? And a typical trade is made. There's probably, it's not like somebody calls you in the morning and you decide, hey, do you want to trade this guy for this guy? And then by lunch, you've made the trade. That's not how it works. It's typically the groundwork is laid like a month or so in advance. And there's more talks. There's more evaluation done. Um, there's background stuff done on players. And then there's tweaking the deal. And then there's, okay, is there a better deal out there? And then 99% of the time you decide, eh, we're, we're not, not going to do it. You know, maybe it's one side, maybe it's both sides, just side it's not right for them. But there's this just never ending dialogue between teams in the NBA and the amount of deals that are discussed and the amount of deals that get done is a vast, vast ocean of difference. So, um, but it, it's, it's good for teams to, you know, brainstorm. Like, is this something I've been talking with this team about this deal that this doesn't maybe fit for us, but they've been talking to another team about a deal and like, Hey, maybe we can make this a three-way. And then all three teams benefit out of it because those are the best deals where both teams feel good when they walk away. And that's what you want as a GM. I mean, everybody fans think, Oh, you're going to go fleece this other team. Well, that's not what, you know, GMs are about. I mean, obviously we're a competitive cutthroat world, but we know we can do good deals with each other when both teams, both sides feel good about the deal. So that's, that's the ultimate goal of trades. But in a small market, the draft and trades are our, our way to build a team is very rarely through free agency. Yeah. For for someone who has traded as many times as I have, I always like hearing about the how long a trade takes to go in. And that makes me feel a little bit better that it wasn't like, ah, oh, I woke up, I don't want Dan on my team anymore. He's out of here. So <laughs> thanks for clearing that up a little bit. <laughs> you know, as far as small market teams and having to have a great eye for who you like for your organization. Uh, I've told this story to a number of people over the years. When I was working with you and for you with the Blazers, one day you said, hey, I need you to go with me to scout a game at Portland State. And I looked at you, I think, at the practice facility. I said, Portland State? <laughs> Who in the biggest guy are we going to watch? He goes, there's a guard on Weber State. I really like him. I've been tracking him over the last couple of years. I, I want I want to get your opinion." And you just left it at that. And I met you at the gym. We went there. There was a number of other, other front office scouts uh, for, from around the league there that night. Gar Foreman with the, the Bulls and a couple other GMs. And I remember looking over and he goes, and you said something along the lines of, I told you he, this guy's good. And I still was like non-believing at that moment because it was the big sky. And you just sat there quietly as, as we watched and, and you were taking your notes on your BlackBerry at the time. And I was doing the same just so we could kind of collaborate later. After the second media timeout, you looked at me and, and you said, what do you think? I said, he's pretty damn good. It ended up being Damian Lillard. I think he had 40 points that night. The Blazers drafted him sixth uh, later that year. When you look back at that process of, of evaluating a Damian Lillard, what do you remember most about him? And do you remember that particular game? Yeah, I do remember that night. Um, and I, I specifically wanted you to go because point guards usually know point guards. Like they, you were, 
you were such a cerebral, smart player. And being around you, I knew you knew the game. That's why I wanted you specifically to be there the same night I was, because I wanted to get your perspective, because you played the position. And you're going to see that position probably differently than your average scout who's just out there watching everybody, because you're going to appreciate and and pinpoint the things that he's doing or not doing uh, that really are going to translate or not translate to the next level. So I was really curious to see your thoughts. Um, obviously, you turned into a terrific player. Uh, but I think I found this, my boss, Kevin Pritchard, was also a point guard. And he's always said, you know, players can fool me, but point guards can't fool me. Like, I know that position. That's the way I felt about you. And that's why I really valued your opinion that night, because um, it's a small school player um, who's not maybe the premier guy on TV all the time. And so you've got to have a unique perspective and an open-mindedness to somebody who's not playing for Duke or Kentucky and is on ESPN every night. And people are talking about him all the time, writing about him all the time. So that's why I really valued you, what you thought of him that night. And um, he turned out to be, like you said, he's turned out to be a great player. So, and a phenomenal person too. Yeah. He's doing some great things both on the court and in the community in Portland, uh, which I don't live there anymore, but it, it's still dear to my heart because I grew up there, played for the Blazers on occasion, worked in the front office and the coaching staff. But uh, now, you know, a lot of people know me because of Gonzaga basketball. A lot of listeners of this podcast uh, listen because of Gonzaga. You guys drafted a Gonzaga point guard this year, somebody who I think uh, was the best point guard in college basketball a season ago. Uh, I think he was a big reason they had had the success the last two years. Um, because he's such a steady kind of do, do your work, do your work. You know what you can count on guy in Andrew Nemhart. What was the process like evaluating scouting him and how excited are you to have him in Indiana? Sure. If I, if I go back, Andrew, Tommy Lloyd, you know, Tommy, um, former assistant Gonzaga, now at Hickox, Arizona is somebody I confide in a lot on players. Um, Cause I respect, you know, his background, his knowledge of players and, he told me from probably he was, he was at Gonzaga a month there after he transferred there. And he told me, I'm telling you, Chad, Andrew Nemhard is going to be an NBA player. He's, and at the time I'd seen him a little bit. Um, it was kind of, it was kind of vanilla, you know, he's like, eh. and Tommy just kept pounding me all the time. Every time I talked to him, Andrew Nemhard, Andrew Nemhard, Andrew Nemhard. Um, even when they had, you know, Jalen Suggs, he's like telling you, Andrew Nemhard is going to be a pro. He's going to be a pro. And then obviously Tommy left and, um, ironically, we end up drafting Andrew and his player, Ben Mathman, in Arizona. So Tommy's, uh, I, I told Tommy, I said, we better get good scouting seats when we come to Arizona. We're taking all your guys. But I think Andrew just grew on me. He grew on our entire scouting staff. And his, like you said, he's just steady. And one of the things in an 82-game season is, as a coach, if you know what you're going to get every time you put in that player, that's valuable. And guys that are really volatile with their play are hard for coaches to trust. And they might have stretches where they play great one night or quarter, and then they're just non-existent or they play terrible for a week. And that, that's hard for a player or for a coach to look down on the bench and say, get in the game, get in the game. Whereas you look down on the bench and you know, I put this guy in and he's going to take care of the ball. He's going to make great decisions. He's going to play unselfish. He's going to defend his position. And I mean, Andrew, checks every box that a coach looks for when it comes to trusting a player and a point guard position. He's going to go through some learning 
a learning curve and some growing pains like you went through. Um, but his steadiness, and we call it calm waters is what we call it with the, the Pacers, is you, you're going to have highs and lows in an 82-game season. If you react to the highs or react to the lows too much, the, the extremes are going to be so vast, whereas it's every day is a new day. Forget what happened yesterday. Forget what happened last night. Forget what happened last quarter. Andrew just looks forward. He's always looking forward. He's always just under control. And our players are going to love playing with him because he just he looks to make others around him better. He's always looking to make the right pass. Very rarely turns the ball over. Can make open shots. I think he'll improve as a shooter. Uh, we've already seen some growth from him this summer. And he's got great size. And he just has the cerebralness and the, the mental makeup to be a very, very steady NBA point guard. I agree. I think he's going to be a really good NBA point guard. I think you guys made a great choice. You lost a lot of fans in Spokane when you traded DeMontis a bonus, but you got them all back when you picked Andrew Nembhard. <laughs> that was a tough one. Domas is a heck of a player, and we feel like we've got a heck of a player back. So that's one of those trades where I think both teams felt great. But I think the role of Domas obviously is a, a, a you know another zag, and we just think the role of that program. I mean, God, Coach Few and that program just produce – good players that are well coached that are unselfish that are tough and those are the type of guys that you want on your team and um as long as coach fuse there i mean i think his team's going to keep producing more and more pros well chad i appreciate the time it was uh it was awesome this summer to walk into a gym in las vegas look over to my left up in the crowd see you and recognize realize you still had the same phone number. You had my phone number still locked into yours. And so we were able to reconnect. So uh, appreciate you joining. Thanks for your time. Absolutely, Dan.